It's Brian Preston, the money guy. Restoring order to your financial chaos. Retirement, investing, taxes. You've got financial questions, he's got financial answers. It's Brian Preston, the money guy. Welcome to the Money Guy Show. This is your host, Bo Hanson. If uh, if you're tuning in for the first time, normally there are two of us here, Brian Preston and myself, who kind of bring you guys the personal finance topics. But lo and behold, Brian is actually down at one of his most favorite places in the whole entire world this week. He is down at Disney uh, with the family because the kids are out for school. So I will be flying solo today. So uh, bear with me. Um, if you're new to the show, we, uh, we have a fee-only wealth management firm down on the south side of Atlanta, Nashville, Tennessee, and then up in North Georgia. Um, by day, we are fee-only financial advisors, and kind of on the side, we like to do this, uh, this little podcast to share some, some good news about making sound uh, financial decisions. Our charge is we like to go beyond common sense and help restore order to your financial chaos. Uh, why are we doing this? Brian is a, a certified public accountant, certified financial planner, and a personal financial specialist. I am a certified financial planner and a chartered financial analyst, which means I'm a, I'm a really nerdy investments guy. Um, so what I want to do is when I was talking with Brian before he left to go out of town, he said, okay, but I want you to, to do a show this week. Um, just do a good basics show. See if you can't find a good article to go over some good basic financial concept that people, you know, it's been a while, we've kind of done these very specialized shows, something generalized. So I started looking through some articles and I found uh, some really cool things that I want to share with you guys. And I found one article that I thought was awesome because like I said, we we like to go beyond common sense when we share information with you guys. So I found this article in CNN Money that says uh, six secrets to a dream retirement. And I think that's what we're all talking, you know, talking about no matter what stage of life you're in, You want that dream retirement. You want to be able to rest assured knowing that one day you can stop working with your hands in your back and start letting those dollars that you've saved up over all the years start working for you um, so you can move from doing the things that you have to do to the things that you want to do. That's the ultimate dream. And what I like about this article that I chose is that uh, it it goes through kind of all the stages in life. So if you're a 20-something starting out, some of the things are going to hit, hit you. Uh, if you are nearing retirement, some of the things are going to hit you. And then if you're even in retirement, I think some of these things are going to hit you. And I like it because it doesn't just focus on the money piece. It kind of focuses on all the aspects of life and how the money piece ties in. It goes through investments, health, career, the family, midlife changes, and debt. And those are kind of the six steps that, that walk you through how to get to that dream retirement. But before I get to that, I found another article that I think is awesome, and I'm going to share it. And you know why I'm going to share it? Because I'm the only one here today, so I get to make the decisions and do that kind of stuff. thought it was really, really neat. I was going through these articles, and I found one, because uh, this is a joke that Brian and I say all the time, but just kind of the nature of what we do, I always make the joke, hey, Brian, you know, if you really want me to start, you know, start prospecting for the firm and kind of going out and getting some more business for us, um, I'd be more than happy to go back to some Ivy League institution to start, you know, who knows, maybe I could be the guy who's friends with Mark Zuckerberg before he becomes Mark Zuckerberg. I'd be more than happy to do that. Uh, I, I don't know that we have that in our continuing education budget just yet, but I'm still working on it. But I found this great piece, and it's called Billionaire You, Why Harvard Mints Mega Rich Alums. And it was so interesting to me, and I like it because it has some pretty cool stats on here, but I really like the way the article closes out. But essentially what it does is it walks through a lot of the prestigious institutions in this country and kind of, you know, how many billionaires they've produced. 
because you may not know this, there, there are not that many billionaires out there in the world. So it kind of goes through all the institutions, and, uh, and so I'll just kind of jump right in. It says, the, the Massachusetts Institute of Technology, MIT, has its hedge fund quants. The University of Southern Cal has its movie moguls. But if you really want your child to be a billionaire, you might want to send them to Harvard. Harvard has graduated some 52 billionaires with a collective fortune of $205 billion. That's nearly twice as many as the number two school, which was the University of Pennsylvania, which has 28 billionaire alumni worth a collective $112 billion. So Harvard has 52 billionaires, more than twice as many as the next, next, uh, next, next second highest school. And what's really crazy about this is these numbers don't include either Microsoft's Bill Gates or Facebook's Mark Zuckerberg, both of whom attended Harvard but did not stay to get their degree. Together they were some $45 billion. So not even including those two guys, Harvard is still you know, way up on the list. It says, before dismissing Harvard uh, as a domain of rich kids who mostly inherit their wealth, consider this. This school also claimed the highest percentage of self-made billionaires in the study. 74% of the school's billionaire alumni built that. And that's pretty incredible because I think a lot of people, when you t think about these Ivy League institutions, you think about sort of these trust funds that are kind of passed on. And so, you know, it's the names you recognize that, that kind of continue to go to these schools. But a lot of these billionaires were self-made, that, you know, kind of first generation. Um, it, it interviewed a couple of different people who, who are authorities on the subject and said, Harvard has this entrenched, powerful network that extends across so many sectors and is incredibly proactive about connecting its alumni. You get a great education, but you also get access. Uh, it goes on to show that the, the time old adage is so true. It's not just what you know, it's who you know. Um, so I thought that was kind of neat. So it, it talked about billion, billionaires, but then it even went on to mention, okay, what universities have created ultra-high net worth individuals? And this describes ultra-high net worth as those who have uh, a net worth in excess of $30 million dollars. It says there are smaller clusters of successful graduates who have drawn in other alumni. The University of Virginia, of the University of Virginia, for instance, has many few, fewer billionaires, but outdid Harvard for the highest percentage of self-made wealthy at 79%. Uh, Mo, uh, pardon me if I mess this up. Monash or Monash University in Melbourne, Australia, is a launching pad for women. 17% of their ultra-high net worth graduates are women. Among top universities, Northwestern and Brown are conducive to female wealth with 15% and 14% uh, here in North America. It goes on, though, but in terms of sheer number, ultra-high net worth, Harvard's total totals close to 3,000 alumni who are worth more than $30 million with their total outsized net worth of $622 billion. says this is big enough to make the parents... Um, whose children won't be going, feel left out. But it says, it kind of paints it up, and I'll close the article out with this. It puts a nice little ribbon on it. In all, the universities mentioned in Wealth X's report have helped create about 14,355 ultra-high net worth individuals out of a total global population of more than 186,000. So if you do the numbers on that, it's 7%. So 7% of those people... Uh, who, who, have, who have accumulated more than $30 million in assets came from these institutions. So what that means is that leaves 93% of the world's super rich who did fine without attending a top-ranked school. So it made me happy to see that a lot of people who get to those super, super high upper echelons of wealth didn't necessarily come from um, 
come from money. They could be self-made, and they didn't have to all go to Yale or Harvard. If you're curious, top five in terms of billionaires was Harvard, University of Pennsylvania. Uh, number three was Stanford. Number four was New York. Number five was Columbia. Uh, pretty upsetting to see that University of Georgia did not make the list, but maybe uh, maybe one day we can we can work on that. So, pretty cool article. Thought that was interesting. You guys may not have enjoyed it as much as me, but I thought uh, I always like reading that kind of stuff because I think it's it's very very interesting. Article I want to share with you guys today is the six secrets to a dream retirement. And this was actually a collaborative article done by Beth Braverman, Donna Rosado, and Penelope Wang um, over at CNN Money. Uh, it says that the, to get to dream retirement, you need to save money, and the market needs to give you a decent payback for your effort. Talking about rate of return, no secrets there. Hiding in plain view, however, are other keys to post-work bliss that are at least as important as savings rates and stock returns. So what they're saying is there's something else out there besides just saving money and besides just getting a rate of return that can help lead to that dream retirement. It says, especially from your mid-40s, say to your early 60s, you'll make money-related decisions that have clear implications for the near term, but that require some imagination for you to see their critical impact on how you'll live 10, 20, and 30 years down the road. What I really like about this article is it goes through, it tells you the secret, and then it gives you some action steps. And as I'm reading this, I want you guys to think about there's a lot of money guy echo in here. And it starts out with the very first one. It jumps into investments, obviously, because that's the, that's the piece that's on the forefront. It says the secret, 16.6% is the magic number. Now, if you've been a money guy listener for any period of time, you know exactly what I'm talking about here. But essentially, what the research in this article found is that the key to having a safe retirement is to save 16.6% of your gross income. Now, our recommendation is we like hypersavers. That's the people who we think really want to, to, to move into that next level of being you know, financially fit. Uh, we like to say we want you to save between 15 and 20%. And if you can get into hypersaver mode, that's actually 20 to 25% of your gross wages. Uh, where did he get this number? Essentially, he did 100,000 trials in every single market scenario dating back to the beginning of the 19th century. And what this found is that if you would have saved 16.6% of your gross wages over a 30-year time period, that's another important variable, uh, you would have had a successful retirement, meaning not outlived your money uh, in every historical market stretch going back to periods beginning of the 19th, uh, 19th century. He found that setting aside 16.6% uh, in a diversified portfolio of stocks and bonds did the trick every time and he says, don't worry, this number includes the employer match that you may be getting, uh, and that's if you do it for 30 years. It goes on to say, if a slower starter, meaning someone who maybe starts when they're 45 years old, uh, needs to save a little bit more, starting getting up to 20% and even more, um, and then in, in markets where there's a really strong rate of return, you can actually save less, but it says don't bank on that because we have a lot of, of headwinds looking at us. And I really like how he tied it up. He says... Um, Stocks are less predictable, bonds are less predictable, risks today include a wobbly global economy and an aging population who may prefer holding bonds to stocks. This is the key right here, so ding, 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 write this down. The more you can save, the less you have to worry about this stuff. This ties back to what we've been saying all along, is being investing is a side effect to being financially secure. The hard part is saving. You know, let your accumulation outdo your allocation and you are going to be happy. The more you save, the easier it becomes, and the, the, the more of that dream retirement you can have. 
He goes on to give you a few other investing tips. He says, buy cheap funds. It's like saving, but easier. And you hear us say this all the time. In really efficient asset classes, uh, like large cap and that sort of thing, you know, there's nothing wrong with buying an index. There's nothing wrong with paying, you know, seven hundredths of a percent to get some access. Uh, and you'll probably do just fine doing that. Now, the one caveat is some funds are more expensive. Just make sure if you're buying a more expensive fund, you know what you're paying for, and that extra expense has extra reward. If you're going to pay a little bit more, make sure you're getting a little bit more, um, especially when you're looking at you know uh, bond funds or uh, international funds, small cap, those those sort of things. An interesting thing he said on here was get in touch with a future you, and it mentioned uh, a couple apps where you can put a picture of your face in there. It'll show you what you'll look like 40 years from now. I tried it. It doesn't look very accurate, or at least let's hope it doesn't look very accurate, because I didn't think that uh, that that, that uh, 65-year-old 60, Bo uh, is, what, is what that's actually going to look like, so who knows. Um, and then it says, know when to dial down risk. Five years before retirement, zero in on how much you'll need to pay essential expenses, says, uh, says this uh, one financial advisor who was interviewed. Uh, and that's exactly what we say. When you're when you're early and young and accumulating, shoot for that 15 to 20 percent. You're probably going to be successful. When you start getting more towards retirement, that's where it does start to make sense to start doing some things like Monte Carlo analysis and looking at long-term cash flow distribution. You know, look at what retirement withdrawal rate is going to be the most successful for you, and you can get very specific. It doesn't make sense to do a long-term retirement cash flow plan if you're 30 years old, because there are so many variables that can change. So I wouldn't get bogged down in that. Young, young people shoot for that 15 to 20, hyper saver 25%. And then if you're nearing retirement, you may want to sit down and really start doing some, some projections and maybe even hiring a financial advisor to kind of help you walk through those decisions. So that's kind of the investments piece. He moves on to go to health and he says, here's the secret. Um, a greasy burger is worse than a bear market. Well, I think there's probably two considerations you're not, you're not considering. One, which bear market is it? And two, how good is that greasy burger? But that, that's neither here nor there. Uh, it says, when it comes to retirement, good health cuts both ways. Uh, as any financial calculator would tell you, living longer actually means you'll need a bigger nest egg. But the healthier you are leading up to retirement, the easier it is to build up the savings you'll need. Uh, there was a recent, a recent study done by the National Bureau of Economic Research um, they found that people who were among the healthiest 20% in their 50s retired with three times the assets of the less healthy, and the healthy also spent down their wealth more slowly. So that's kind of that's kind of funny to me. I imagine where these numbers are coming from are healthcare costs. Uh, as you age, if you're healthier, you spend less on healthcare. So naturally, you draw down your savings uh, slower and slower, which is a good thing. It says uh, the take action part: know the numbers. According to the U.S. Agency for Healthcare Research and Quality, one-third of adults with diabetes don't know it, and about 20% of adults with high blood pressure are unaware. That is kind of scary. I'll tell you one thing that, that my wife and I are doing is um, she, she's a teacher uh, here in our hometown, and we're part of the wellness plan uh, for the health insurance. And one, one thing that you do with a wellness plan is you're required to get a physical to, to qualify for the lower premiums. But I'm glad we're doing it. You know, we're both young, and I'm, I'm, I would assume that both of us are in really good shape. But it is going to give me a little bit of extra peace of mind here in the next month when we go get our physicals to know if we have any of these things going on, like high blood pressure, high cholesterol. Stay on top of those things because it's much easier to be proactive before you have a problem than to be reactive once it's already gone, gone too far. Um, it goes on to say, 
Focus on the things that you can control. Just because you have a family history of health, of a health condition does not mean you'll get it as well. DNA is not your destiny. Um, it goes on to talk about, doesn't, doesn't come as any surprise that whether you smoke, how much you drink, your weight, your exercise routine will affect all this. And he says, any smoking is bad, but how much alcohol or weight is too much? Here's the scoop. No more than seven drinks a week for women or 14 for men, according to the National Institute of Alcohol Abuse and Alcoholism. So seven drinks a week for women, so that's a drink a night, or 14 for men, which is two a night. That seems high to me, but, you know, I'm not a doctor. I'm a financial guy, so maybe, maybe that's right. It says for weight, check your body mass. There's a website it gives. Uh, it says check your body mass index at CDC. Dot gov to see if you're in a healthy range. So there's there's something. If you're curious about where your BMI falls, you can check out that website. And then it says you don't have to be a triathlete. Just two and a half hours of moderate exercise a week can make the difference, according to the Centers for Disease Control. Uh, if you need some extra motivation at the treadmill, people who are fit and middle-aged battle, battle fewer chronic ailments in the last five years of life, so they get to enjoy more of their retirement being active and feeling good. Um, there's a client who, who, he's a client of ours, and we consider him a very close friend. Um, and one thing he always tells us is that he wants to, you know, he's done very well, been very successful. He wants to make sure he stays healthy um, because he wants to enjoy all this money that he saved. You know, he spent all these years saving up, and now he wants to be able to take the family on trips and go buy the the, the nice things that he wants because uh, he made those hard decisions er earlier in life. Uh, and he wants to do it now while he's still healthy enough that he can. And, and I think that's important an important thing to remember because, um, you know, Brian says this all the time, you can't take it with you. It's about making memories, and the way that you make memories is by staying healthy. Third part, uh, it's, it talks about career. Now, this was an interesting one because it makes all the sense in the world, but I had not actually thought about it in the terms that the article breaks it down in. All right, it says, here's the secret. Success at 50 means a whole new skill set. What, Carol, what do you think about that? She's, she's nodding her head. Yes, yeah, she agrees with that. Um, success at 50 means a whole new skill set. It says nearly half of the workers in their 50s expect to retire at 65, according to a survey by Transamerica. But listen to this. You cannot finance a 30-year retirement with a 40-year career. Holy cow, that really does. If you think about the mathematics behind it, that makes sense. You can't finance a 30-year retirement with a 40-year career. The reality, though, is that many careers don't make it to 65. Uh, being pushed out isn't the only risk. Losing a job in middle age can leave a hole in your savings even after you get back to work. So it goes on down to the, to the take action part, and it says, Go beyond mentors. Find champions. Early in your career, you may have had a mentor who showed you the ropes of your job. Later on, though, you'll need higher-level contacts who can sing your praises when it comes time for raises, promotions, or job cuts, and who can connect you to decision-makers in other departments or firms. You want credible people who can advocate for you. So funny, it ties right back into the whole billionaire article that I just shared. It's not always what you know, it's who you know. Um, you want to make sure that in your career, your profession, your job, even if you're self-employed, there are ways to do this. Surround yourself by people that you want to emulate. Surround your people by yourself by other successful people that are vertically on the career ladder with you. If you're a self-employed individual in Industry X, 
find someone who's been successful in industry X and make sure that you know you're you're trying to do the things that they did to get to where they are even inside your organization figure out how you can start getting in the front uh, getting in front of decision makers and people uh, who need to be on you know a fan uh, in your gallery it says they may not be the next cubicle over or people you even like are likely to see every day Put yourself in positions to interact with senior-level people in a meaningful way. Seek out cross-departmental assignments or get actively involved in industry associations. People are much more likely to champion you if they feel that you've been a champion for them too. In your network and give at least as much as you hope to get. So that's what it's saying. If you want to put yourself in front of, of successful people or in front of people who you want to be advocates for you, you need to do something that shows that you're an advocate for them. So one of the things that goes on in the article says, hey, ask, ask some of your bosses or upper-level upper management, hey, what project can I spearhead? What new skill set can I take on that's going to advance whatever the motivation of the firm is? Or how, you know, I see what our long-term goal is. What new things can I be doing to help us get there so that you're adding value to your manager, supervisor, boss, whatever the, whatever the case may be, be willing to put into it what you're hoping to get out of it. It says, show knowledge, not credentials. After 45, pricey degrees may not be worth the investment. You simply have less career time to make the cost pay off. Employers do like to see, though, that you are still learning, uh, says uh, Scott Kane, who's the founder of Job Placement Service Gray Hair Management. It says, sign up for short courses that teach skills that apply to your industry. Uh, online providers, and I haven't checked either one of these, but I'm going to mention them since in the article, Coursera, C-O-U-R-S-E-R-A, and Udacity now offer many for free or take on project work that force you to master new technology. So you can do continuing ed without going the traditional route and going to a university or institution and having to get a degree. A little bit less expensive, but it still kind of conveys the same type of message. And then it goes on to say, focus on transferable skills. Think about the things you've done that could be valuable to a wide variety of employers. For example, the time you overhauled a training program or spearheaded a cost-cutting team. Keep track of these accomplishments by regularly updating your resume and LinkedIn profile. That's another big one, and I think a lot of people miss that, is that you get kind of, I don't want to say rut, because rut's not the right word, but you get into this comfort zone where you currently are, and you achieve these new goals, and you do all these new things. And you forget to, to track them. You forget to, to make note of when they happened. So one thing that I've done, and, and the reason that's important, is say something does happen later on in life where you need to do a career change or move on, you need to have something tangible where you can show these are all the things I've accomplished. It's a lot easier to keep track of that list as they're happening than after the fact trying to remember a 20-year work history of what in the world did I do for the last 20 years. So one thing I've done is I have a file that I keep on my, on my computer here. Every time that I'm ever uh, mentioned in an article or featured in a magazine or something, I will you know just save a link to it, print a copy of it, and keep that archived so I always know, okay, here are the accomplishments, here are the things that I've done when I did them, so that if I ever got to the point where I needed to broadcast myself I have all of those listed right there where I can, where I can just uh, present them to whoever it needs to be presented to. Um, number four, it goes on. This is step number four, the family. This is a huge one, especially in what we do. And this, you're going to hear a lot of money guy echoes and then also a lot of Dr. Charles Stanley echoes, you know, the millionaire next door and stop acting rich and start li living like a true millionaire. And it says the secret 
And if you have adult children or children nearing adulthood, here is the secret. Know when to say no to the kids. The plan was to speed up on retirement saving once your kids were out of school. Then your son lost his job and moved back home. And Nana is becoming frail and needs help too. This is something that we see so, so often. Um, Middle-aged individuals get hit with this double whammy of children that they can't get out of the house and parents that are getting back into the house. And it becomes a very, very difficult thing financially to do. And it's hard because, because everyone knows you love your children. You're willing to do anything in the world for them and the same thing for your parents. But you also have to draw the line okay, what things am I doing that are productive and helping these individuals and what things am I doing that are actually enabling them and make, and being a prohibition to them moving to the next place they need to be? Um, it says a new survey by Pew Research found that 48% of middle-aged adults with grown children gave them financial support in 2012. I'm going to say that again. I'm going to paraphrase it. 50%, Carol, 50% of middle-aged individuals gave financial support to their children in 2012. And then some 21% with a parent age 65 or older gave financially. Um, it says others gave time, which which has its own cost. Over 60% of those providing care, uh, either for an adult child or an elderly parent, are saving less for retirement as a result. That makes sense. There's only so much money to, to go around. Um, and you know, when when you're doing both, it gets overwhelming. It says, take action. So here's some action steps. And this is hard. We get it. It's a hard thing to try to navigate. It says, with your kid, draw the lines up front. They interviewed a financial advisor on here. And it says, this financial advisor's client ended up buying his son, who hadn't moved out, a house. He finally told me, I wanted my house back, um, so I bought him a house. I'm not recommending that. If, you're, if your child isn't necessarily making those steps to get out of your house, don't know that it's the most prudent financial decision for you just to go buy them a house. I don't know that you're really helping yourself out that much. Uh, it says, even if things haven't gone that far and your kids are out on their own, you may still be chipping in for health care uh, insurance or cell phone bills. However you pitch in, set clear expectations, however you pitch in, set clear expectations up front. Even put it in writing, uh, says, uh, says Teresa Wan, a financial advisor in New Jersey. It says, ask this question, what specific help does he or she need? If he or she is living with you, what rent are they going to pay and how long? Um, it said you could even, if you don't like the thought of taking money from your children, you could even deposit this rent into a fund that she can use for future costs after she moves out. And I think that's a great idea. Say your adult child just finished college, isn't quite ready to be on that, that place where they're on their own. If you're going to let them live with them, charge them some nominal amount of rent to at least get them used to paying a bill. Even if you just put in a savings account and when they finally do move out, say, hey, here's a down payment on that house or here's, you know, the getting started. Whatever the case may be, you're teaching them those, those invaluable services that, that they're going to need to know, those life lessons. Um, it says, uh, try to distinguish between investments in their future, such as a career counselor or job-related courses, and extras that should be his or her responsibility, like concert tickets. It's one thing to pay for something to help them advance their career. It's another thing to pay for something to help them advance their social life. Um, 
and says, if you know what mom or dad can afford, when a problem arises, you can take steps. Uh, oh, I'm sorry, I, sk- I skipped it. So, so that's uh, the kids. The next thing is, and, and this is one that's really, really hard because it's an uncomfortable conversation, especially with the, the older generations, just because they're not always so upfront and forthcoming about this. It says, get a clear view of your parents' finances. It's often a tough conversation, but you can ease tension by enlisting a third party such as a financial planner. And I think that's probably a, a really good idea. If you're uncomfortable saying, hey, mom, dad, what do you have going on financially? You can come at it from a good place saying, hey, mom, have you guys thought about, you know, as you're aging, maybe us as a family seeing an advisor? You know, maybe are there things that we can be doing to get a professional in here to help us? It says, if you know what mom or dad can afford when a problem arises, you can take steps together with them to avoid unnecessarily damaging your own finances. For example, it might become clear that if your parents downsize to a smaller condo, it would free up some money for paying a home health aid, perhaps uh, forestalling a costlier nursing home stay. It says, tap senior services. Government and nonprofit agencies offer a range of help for the elderly, um, including adult daycare and in-home aid, and they may be low-cost or free. If you want to find help in your area, get a pen ready because here comes a website, go to eldercare.gov, E-L-D-E-R care.gov. It says, uh, you'll face a time frame, but you can get a hand. Having to provide aid to parents gets in the way of your career and leaves little time left over for getting on top of your own financial planning. A geriatric care manager can help you oversee your parents' home and health services, Search for one at caremanager.org. Expect to pay $150 to $200 an hour. This is essentially saying if you don't have the time to provide those, those services for, for your elderly parents, maybe it is maybe you do need to, to look at what the cost would be to have someone step in who can help with that. Uh, and then lastly, it says don't miss tax breaks. You may be able to claim adult relatives you help as dependents. For them to qualify, you must provide more than half their financial support their gross income for the year, excluding Social Security, must also be less than $3,900 as of 2013. So that's uh, talking about the family. And then here's the last, uh, actually, no, this isn't the last one. This is the fifth one, midlife changes. And I think this is good because what, what I like about this is when you get to the midlife, uh, most people, you're, you're at the halfway point. You've been working for half time, you got 50% more time to work, and then you get to retire. And you kind of lose sight of those those goals that sometimes you need to recalibrate, figure out, okay, wh- what were those goals I had when I'm when I was 20 years old, 30 years old, and what am I doing now to make sure I hit those goals by the time I get to 50 years old, 60 years old? Um, it says the secret: forget the house, go for the pension. Um, retirement plans often go by the wayside when your marital status changes. As a married couple, you have the vision of riding off into the sunset together when you retire. Um, Unfortunately, this is not always the case. Uh, When your marriage ends, you have to create a new vision of your retirement. Uh, Divorce or losing a spouse um, drains income and assets, making it much harder to continue saving the same way you did as a married couple. A recent survey by ING found that the average divorced person had $10,000 less in retirement savings than the average married person, even though the divorce respondents were typically five years older. If you think about the time value of money, that's that's a pretty incredible statistic. It says that women often find themselves especially pressed. Household income drops 41% for women after divorce and 37% in widowhood, 
compared with 25% in both cases for, uh, for men. It says, take action. Don't make 401k and pension plans an afterthought as you split up assets. While your first impulse might be to go for the family house, weigh the benefits of doing so if it means getting less of the retirement accounts you and your spouse built up together. Spouse who gets the retirement plan assets may be in much better shape for retirement than the one who got the house. And the reason for this is houses are illiquid and they have uh, maintenance and upkeep that, that you have to pay for. Sometimes the best strategy for both parties is to sell the house, split the equity, and downsize. Uh, next, it says take control of your portfolio choices. If, if in the case of a divorce, uh, it's likely that one spouse will be awarded a qualified domestic relations order where they get a portion of the other spouse's retirement plan. Um, you can either leave these and with the current 401k, if it's a 401k account with a current 401k provider, or you could roll it into an IRA for your benefit. Rolling it into an IRA generally opens up the investment landscape for you, provides you with more options. Uh, and I like, I like this. It says, keep the investing part simple. Since in many couples, just one spouse handles the chore of managing investments, you might feel like you suddenly have to climb a steep learning curve to run your retirement funds. Uh, an easy start, and this is a ding, 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 money guy echo, put the money in a target date fund, which gives you a pre-mixed, diversified portfolio appropriate for your age, or at least until you've had a chance to consider other investments. The target funds from T. Rowe Price and Fidelity are on the money, the CNN Money 70 list. I'm going to throw out another one. Uh, Fidel, uh, Fidelity also has great, great ones. So T. Rowe Price, Vanguard, and Fidelity. Uh, if you're not familiar, familiar with the way a target date retirement fund works, and this goes for, this can go for divorce or even young people starting out who just don't know what to invest in. Essentially, you pick the age you want to retire, what year that is, and you invest in a retirement fund or in a mutual fund that's going to manage the investments as though you retired in that year. So right now, say you pick the target date, you know, 2045 fund. Right now, it's going to be more aggressive with a higher mix of stocks than bonds. And as you move towards retirement, it's going to get more and more conservative. So essentially, it's kind of doing what a financial advisor would do for you. It's designing the allocation on a simplified basis over your um, working life expectancy until you actually need, you know, need access to those assets. We like them because it's kind of an automatic thing, sort of puts an autopilot. They're very low cost in terms of internal expenses, and it's a way to get diversification. You could certainly go buy a super cheap index fund, but if you just buy an index fund, you're not necessarily getting the same type of diversification you might get from a target retirement fund. It goes on talking about uh, if you remarry, you can keep the money separate, but don't let it be a secret. Um, prenuptial agreements are more common in second marriages, especially uh, if a spouse wants to preserve assets for their own children. But that doesn't mean you shouldn't be working together towards your new goals as a new couple. And then it says, uh, this, is a, this is a huge one, and unfortunately we've seen this more than we would like to see. When facing a spouse's early death, give yourself a financial cooling off period. You may suddenly have a lot of money from life insurance or retirement accounts to deal with all at once. And that means before too long, you'll start hearing from people, whether it be a well-meaning family member or an agent or a broker, with ideas of how to invest it. Park the money somewhere safe for the short term. And this is what you need to realize. There is nothing in the world wrong with letting money sit in cash while you're trying to make decisions. Okay, yeah, financially, you might be missing out on some opportunity cost. But how, much, how great is the cost if you make a bad decision? Or you get bamboozled by somebody who doesn't have 
your best interest at heart. Um, it says, park the money somewhere safe for the short term. If you let six months or a year pass while you deal with the emotional impact of the loss, you can make the financial decisions with a clearer head. That's generally what we always recommend. We tell people, if you ever come into life insurance or inheritance, you don't have to make a decision fast. And if someone tells you that you do from an investment uh, type perspective, uh, they may not have your best interest at heart. So make sure you keep that in mind. And the last one, I'm not going to spend a ton of time on this one because you guys are Money Guy listeners. You have this figured out. You go beyond common sense. And I think this is one of those common sense things. It says debt. The secret, burn the credit card, not the mortgage. It says an Ameriprise survey of older workers with at least 100000 in assets found that 22% were not on track to pay off their credit cards by retirement. You've heard us say this over and over. Credit cards usually don't even become a factor because that's not even on our radar. But we don't consider someone fully retired until they're debt-free. I said it, debt-free. That includes the mortgage. We're talking about Dave Ramsey debt-free. If you have credit cards, retire, you, just, you don't need to have that in retirement. There's so many other psychological factors that come into play when you decide to finally stop working for good that having debt that you must service is just one additional burden that you do not need to carry. Um, it says, take action. Paying off pricey debt is the only good reason to save less. Just make sure you put away enough to get any employer match. By all means, if you have credit cards out there that have 20% interest charges on them, it's okay to cut off the savings to get those things knocked out because every dollar you pay on that debt is providing you with an immediate 20% rate of return. You're not necessarily going to get that in, in the investment marketplace. It says, use these rule of thumbs for college debt. I thought this was really interesting. It's tempting to take big loans to pay for a kid's dream school, like Harvard, if you've listened earlier. Have your child look into Stafford loans first, borrowing over four years, no more than his projected first-year salary, and then consider Parent PLUS loans or co-signing on a private loan. So did you hear that rule of thumb? Try to have your child not borrow more in total than what their first-year salary will be. It says the rules. Don't borrow more for all of your children than your annual salary. That's a rule of thumb that makes sense, but I hadn't heard it ever, ever put that way. And be sure you can pay it off in 10 years or by the time you retire, whichever is first. Um, and then it says, you know, there's less of a rush to pay off a mortgage now. With today's rates and favorable tax treatment of mortgage interest, you may be paying less than 4%. Eliminating the mortgage can make sense since it lowers your expenses, but you may not have to do that. If you can afford the payments... You can hang on a loan and leave more of your money in a diversified portfolio. Here's our take on that. Save 20 to 25%. Be a hyper saver. If there's extra money laying around, you've built up your emergency reserves, why the heck not pay off the mortgage? Yeah, you know, we say it over and over. There are financial calculators and spreadsheets you can look at that show you why that may not be the A-plus 100% best financial decision, but psychologically, it makes a difference in your psyche when you don't owe anybody a thing and you can get that mortgage knocked out and you can be completely debt-free. Um, so I thought that article was great. It's a, a CNN Money article. Did a really good job uh, walking through that. I'm excited because you know, you guys know every time that Brian uh, gets back from Disney, he always gives us a recap. Um, so I'm excited to hear how his trip went, get some more tips from him. And, uh, and I also just want to say thank you so much. We've been getting some fantastic emails from you guys. 
uh, with some show topics, some questions, uh, some iTunes comments out there. That's what keeps us on the front page and relevant. We thank you so much for that. And, uh, and just thank you for being just such a fantastic audience, guys. Um, if you, uh, you want to write the show, you can uh, write Brian, B-R-I-A-N, at money-guy.com. You can write me, Bo, B-O, at money-guy.com. You can go out and check out the website at money-guy.com. If you want to see what we look like, we got a Facebook page out there with some pictures on there. Uh, you can check that out, and then you can also leave the iTunes comments. Thank you guys so much for listening. Next week, or in two weeks, we'll be back to our normal format. We'll have both of you. Uh, right, we'll have both of us right in here ready to rock and roll and help you guys restore order to your personal financial chaos. Thanks so much for listening, and we will talk to you in about two weeks. The Money Guy podcast is hosted by Brian Preston, and Brian Preston is a partner with Preston and Cleveland Wealth Management. Preston and Cleveland Wealth Management is a registered investment advisory firm regulated by the Securities and Exchange Commission in accordance and compliance with securities laws and regulations. Preston and Cleveland Wealth Management does not render or offer to render personalized investment or tax advice through the Money Guy podcast. The information provided is for informational purposes only and does not constitute financial, tax, investment, or legal advice.